Turn with me again, if you will, to Genesis chapter 31. Genesis 31, and we'll pick up with verse 22 and go all the way to the end of the chapter, verse 55. 22 to 55, the long portion of Genesis 31. The scripture says that uh, God's people are to walk by faith, not sight. And certainly everyone agrees that God's people ought to be a people of faith. Well, everyone agrees until you actually have to walk by faith sometime. And then you find out that it's more than empty talk to actually move forward without any guarantee except God's word. To take even one step without knowing what the next one's going to be. Well, let's read it. The story of Jacob, we're picking up in the middle of it. Uh, Jacob has just left his father-in-law Laban, packed up his wives and children and livestock and, uh, and, and without any uh, warning has fled to go back to the land of promise, to the land of Canaan, a promise to his grandfather Abraham. Pick it up in verse 22. On the third day, Laban was told that Jacob had fled. Taking his relatives with him, he pursued Jacob for seven days and caught up with him in the hill country of Gilead. Then God came to Laban the Aramean in a dream at night and said to him, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country of Gilead when, when Laban overtook him, and Laban and his relatives camped there too. Then Laban said to Jacob, What have you done? You've deceived me. You've carried off my daughters like captives in war. Why did you run off secretly and deceive me? Why didn't you tell me so I could send you away with joy and singing to the music of tambourines and harps? You didn't even let me kiss my grandchildren and my daughters goodbye. You've done a foolish thing. I have the power to harm you. Last night the God of your father said to me, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. So now you have gone off because you long to return to your father's house. But why did you steal my gods? Jacob answered Laban, I was afraid because I thought you would take your daughters away from me by force. But if you find anyone who has your gods, he shall not live. In the presence of all of our relatives, see for yourself whether there is anything of yours here with me. And if so, take it. Now Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen the gods. So Laban went into Jacob's tent and into Leah's tent and into the tent of the two maidservants, but he found nothing. After he came out of Leah's tent, he entered Rachel's tent. Now Rachel had taken the household gods and put them inside her camel's saddle and was sitting on them. Laban searched through everything in the tent but found nothing. Rachel said to her father, Don't be angry, my lord, that I cannot stand up in your presence. I'm having my period. So he searched but could not find the household gods. Jacob was angry and took Laban to task. What is my crime? he asked Laban. What sin have I committed that you hunt me down? Now that you have searched through all my goods, and what have you found that belongs to your household? Put it here in front of your relatives and mine, and let them judge between the two of us. I have been with you for 20 years now. Your sheep and goats have not miscarried, nor have I eaten rams from your flock. I did not bring you animals torn by wild beasts. I bore the loss myself, and you demanded payment from me, whatever was stolen by night or day. This was my situation. The heat consumed me in the daytime, 
and the cold at night, and sleep fled from my eyes. It was like this for the 20 years I was in your household. I worked for you 14 years for your two daughters and six years for your flocks, and you changed my wages 10 times. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been with me, you would surely have sent me away empty-handed. But God has seen my hardship and the toil of my hands. And last night he rebuked you. Laban answered Jacob, The women are my daughters, the children are my children. The flocks are my flocks, all you see is mine. Yet what can I do today about these daughters of mine or about the children they have borne? Come now, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it serve as a witness between us. So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. He said to his relatives, gather some stones. So they took stones and piled them up in a heap, and they ate there by the heap. Laban called it Jegar Shahadatha, and Jacob called it Gali. Laban said, this heap is a witness between you and me today. That is why it is called Gali. It was also called Mizpah. Because he said, may the Lord keep watch between you and me when we are away from each other. If you mistreat my daughters or if you have any wives beside my daughters, even though no one is with us, remember that God is a witness between you and me. Laban also said to Jacob, here is this heap and here is this pillar I have set up between you and me. This heap is a witness and this pillar is a witness that I will not pass this heap to your side to harm you and that you will not go past this heap and pillar to my side to harm me. May the God of Abraham and the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judge between us. So Jacob took an oath in the name of the fear of his father Isaac. He offered a sacrifice there in the hill country and invited his relatives to a meal. And after they had eaten, they spent the night there. Early the next morning, Laban kissed his grandchildren and his daughters and embraced and blessed them. And then he left and returned home. <clears throat> Last week we focused on how Jacob's life reflected a recurring motif in uh, the book of Genesis and throughout the Old Testament history. One found in Abraham before him, one found in Israel after him. There are certain elements in this recurring theme. The call of God, that God calls someone to pick up and go where he would send them. A call that needed to be responded to by faith. A call that required a trust in God to do what he said. The presence of enemies and opposition when uh, answering that call. But then also that God blessed his people and prospered them even in the face of, of his enemies. Well, this morning I think we can add another great truth to that same motif. And that is our theme of this morning really one major point today, although we're going to break it down into three things, but that one major thing is that those God calls, God protects. Those God calls, he protects. That's what we see demonstrated in, the, in these events in the life of Jacob. Let's unpack exactly how God protects Jacob, who he called, because I think we can learn something about how God will protect us. And as he calls us to walk by faith as he did uh, Jacob. First of all, uh, God protects uh, Jacob and he protects us in this way. That God restrains our enemies. God restrains our enemies. 
The other day as I browsed through a Christian bookstore, I noticed a whole series of comic books on archangels. I don't know if you've been, I don't go in that bookstore very often, and I'm always amazed at what I find there, but a whole series of comic books on archangels. Here were stories of these superhuman armor-plated warriors conducting spiritual warfare. I must say I was not very impressed that they communicated accurately what the Bible says about spiritual warfare. But nonetheless, the principle is true, that there's more going on than what we see with our natural eyes. There is an unseen reality which is just as real as what we can see and measure. And in ways that we do not comprehend, God works. And God restrains his enemies for the sake of his people. In our account of Jacob's life, Jacob has taken his family and livestock and headed back to the land of Canaan, the land of promise. And as he travels along, he's uh, unaware. He might have been able to figure out that Laban probably was not happy about it, but he's unaware of what's going on. For what's happening is when Laban, his father-in-law, hears that he's gone, Laban uh, gathers what amounts to a family army, and he sets out in, in pursuit of Jacob. With great haste, Laban takes up the chase. We can only speculate about what he intended to do, but the words that are used in this account are words that we know are military words. Fled and overtaken and pursuit and pitched tents. These are military words. Laban and his family army is going after the wayward son-in-law who has stolen away with the daughters and the grandchildren and the flocks, although he had earned those things, of course. Oh, but whom... God calls, God protects, and so God restrained Laban. First, God restrains him by appearing to him in a, in a dream. Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad, the Lord says to Laban. We might say, Laban, you had better watch your step when you talk to Jacob. The same expression was used earlier when Laban's sister, Rebekah, had obviously been chosen and called to go back to be Isaac's wife. And Laban in his father's household speaks about this and he says, obviously God's sovereign hand is at work here. And he uses the same expression, what can I say about it, good or bad? And so now here God says, my hand is also at work in Jacob's departure. And Laban, you have nothing to say about it, good or bad. Now Laban understands this. He gets the message. For even in all of his bravado, as he rails on Jacob later for his hasty departure, he has to acknowledge that he is powerless to do anything about it. Look down to verse 29. Laban blusters, I have the power to harm you. But then he goes on, he says, but last night the God of your father said to me, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. I could hurt you if I want to, but God won't let me. <laughs> you see, God restrained Laban. For God protects those, he calls. That's not the only example of God's restraint, though God also restrains Laban in his search for the household idols. 
this becomes the, the, the big issue. This is his greatest accusation against Jacob, not just that he, he left, for he knew that he had no, nothing to stand on. Jacob had a right to leave. He had paid his debt. He had served his time. But the, the, the issue became these household idols that he believed Jacob had stolen. We know from the Code of Hammurabi, which was a few centuries old at this time, that stealing the property of a god or a temple was a capital offense. Well, Jacob is certain that no one in his family is guilty of such a thing, and so he brashly pronounces a curse on anyone caught with these idols. He will not live, Jacob says. Unbeknown to Jacob, his sweetheart Rachel was guilty. She had stolen these things. Be careful what you say with such certainty. And so Laban begins to search through all of Jacob's stuff and all of Jacob's tents and all of Jacob's family. But Rachel is sitting on the stolen idols. And when Laban comes finally to her, she tricks him just like he had tricked her so many years ago. She excuses herself, begging his pardon for not being able to rise due to her condition. Oh, can you imagine the chaos if Laban had found those household idols in Rachel's tent? Can you imagine his fury? Can you imagine Jacob's humiliation? Can you imagine if the sentence against Rachel had actually been carried out? But you see, the point of the story here, I believe, is not about Rachel and her ability to deceive her father. Well, the point of the story is about God protecting those he calls by restraining his enemies. Indeed, God delivered Jacob from Laban's hand. And in the process, God proved himself mighty. He proved that he was not like the helpless, worthless gods of Laban. For what kind of God allows itself to be stolen and can't make itself known? What kind of God lets itself become ceremonially unclean, being sat upon by a menstruating Rachel? <laughs> now there is no God but the Lord, and he is mighty to restrain his enemies for the protection of his people. Folks, that's the same God revealed to us in the Lord Jesus. He's not changed. And the restraint he exercised in token form in defense of Jacob has now been fulfilled by Christ Jesus. Last week we spoke of the kingdom of God. Indeed, the great characteristic demonstration of the coming of the kingdom in the person of Jesus was his power to restrain and subdue Satan and all of his hosts. Jesus went everywhere casting out demons and that was the characteristic trademark of, 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 of him being the king, God's promised anointed one, who, who would subdue the, the Satan and his host. And so when accused, Jesus says plainly, wait a minute, if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom has come. And he goes on to speak of the, of, of the strong man, clearly a, a reference to Satan, being bound so that he cannot stop God's king from plundering his house and taking his subjects and making them part of the kingdom of God. And you see, that's the victory in which we live. That's what we're called to, to follow Christ, this king, to walk in faith. For Christ has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God's Son. 
And in Christ, we are armed with every spiritual weapon to stand against the greater one, the, the evil one. For we read that greater is he who's in us than the one who's in the world. Oh yes, Satan still goes around as a roaring lion seeking whom he may destroy. But we need have no fear. He's like Laban saying, I could hurt you if I want to. Except that God restrains his enemies. And God protects those who walk in faith. Who answer his call. Trust him. Dear people, you who are paralyzed, paralyzed by fear, I call you to rise up and advance in faith. You can answer God's call fearlessly, for God protects those he calls. Certainly the evil one is greater and more powerful than you or me. But there's more going on than just what you can see. We don't have to worry about God's business. We just trust and obey. God restrains. His enemies. Oh, but God's protection is not just about how he dealt with Laban. God was also working in Jacob. Which brings us to our second uh, thing here about God's protection. And that is that God also grants boldness to the faithful. God grants boldness to the faithful. You know, sheep are very vulnerable. I get in trouble talking about sheep with my wife. So, sheep are very vulnerable and, if I might say so, timid and dumb. <laughs> but I read somewhere that by putting a llama or two with your sheep, you can help protect them from predators because... Unlike the sheep, you know, sheep, if a dog gets in with a sheep, he'll just chase the sheep until the sheep drops dead. Well, the sheep is just so fearful, he'll just run, 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 until he finally is, can't pack it anymore. But a llama's not like a sheep. As a predator, if a predator comes in, a llama just lifts his head up and looks right at him and just goes right toward him <laughs> and intimidates him. Not that the llama would be any any match for a predator, but he intimidates him by his boldness. In our text, we see Jacob intimidating his father-in-law Laban by his boldness. Laban found nothing in his search for his gods. Suddenly, 20 years of injustice has become to come, begin to roll out of Jacob's mouth, and when he's through, Laban is, he, he has no answer. He's defeated. The best he can do is say, maybe we can make a treaty to protect me. <laughs> Listen to what Jacob said, verse 38 again. Let me read some of it. He says, I've been with you for 20 years now. Your sheep and goats have not miscarried, nor have I eaten rams from your flock. I did not bring you animals torn by wild beasts. I bore the loss myself. And you demanded payment from me for whatever was stolen by day or night. This was my situation. The heat consumed me in the daytime and the cold at night and sleep fled from my eyes. It was like this for 20 years. I was in your household. I worked for you 14 years for your two daughters and six years for your flocks and you changed my wages 10 times. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham and the fear of Isaac had not been with me, you would have surely sent me away empty-handed. But God has seen my hardship and the toil of my hands. And last night he rebuked you. Jacob is bold, taking on Laban with all of his family army gathered around him. Here's Jacob and his wives and his 
little boys. <laughs> None of whom could have been over, what, 14 years old. Now we know enough about Jacob to know that Jacob could be a real scoundrel. Jacob had deceived and cheated with the best of them, and he had nothing of, of any righteousness that would have impressed God. Instead, instead, in, indeed, in verse 31, Jacob freely admitted that he sneaked away because he was afraid. Jacob had no reason for confidence in himself. But you see, God had been working in Jacob. And what we hear from Jacob in these verses is not a report of his swindling and his cleverness. What we hear here is a report of the integrity and the perseverance which God in his grace had granted Jacob in his service to Laban. He says, I was a good shepherd. I took care of your flock. I paid what I owed. In fact, I went beyond the call of duty. You see, when a sheep was torn by a wild animal, normally producing the carcass of the sheep would prove to the owner that you had scared the animal off and that would be the end of it. Jacob said, I repaid you for the sheep. I replaced it, which I didn't have to do. With great persistence, Jacob said, I worked. I worked in the heat. I worked in the cold. I worked through the night. For 20 years, I remained faithful to you, Laban, though you changed my wages 10 times. You see, what Jacob is doing here is not, this is not the old deceiver Jacob here. This is Jacob Jacob speaking of the great work of God's grace in him that had granted him a measure of integrity. He's no longer just a deceiver and a cheat. Indeed, here he confesses his faith in the Lord who had preserved him. He says, in fact, if God had not taken care of me, you would have sent me away penniless. But God saw my labor, and God heard my cry, and he did take care. You see, God had worked in Jacob in such a way that Jacob could finally stand and hold his head high with confidence in the face of Laban's threats. God granted him boldness. The boldness that comes of the integrity of a man growing in faith. Now folks, that's still how the, the way God works with us. There's an attitude around that assumes that Christians are to be weak and timid and always beating themselves up for their unworthiness. That's not what God's doing with his children. Through faith in Christ, God has changed us. We are no longer sinners. We are saints in Christ. We're no longer orphans. We are sons and daughters of the great King. We're no longer miserable wretches. We are accepted in Christ. We no, longer, we no longer stand in the shabby clothes of our unrighteousness. No, we're clean. We've been given the righteousness, clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We're no longer filthy and ashamed. We've been given a new name and a new record. And all of this is not self-deception. This is the work of Christ in us. And those who trust him. And what's the result? The result is that we're called to abandon our timidity. 
and with a boldest fitting a child of God to follow Christ fearlessly. And when we do, the world doesn't know what to make of that. God grants us the boldness of faith and then uses it to advance his cause against his enemy. That happens as God transforms our character and gives us reason to boast in his grace. So we're repeatedly instructed to guard our hearts and to guard our behavior so that our boast in the Lord is not compromised. For example, in Proverbs 28.1, we read, The wicked man flees though no one pursues, but the righteous is as bold as a lion. 2 Corinthians 3.12, the apostle Paul speaks of himself and he says, because, because we have such a hope, we are very bold. Titus 2, Paul writes this kind of instruction. He says, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. You see, this is what it means to put on the breastplate of righteousness, by learning to walk in the integrity and the righteousness of Christ. God makes us fearless. But who can attack us? We're bold. Not because we're better than Jacob. For he had no reason for boldness in himself either. But because we're in Christ. He's worked his grace in us. God protects us by teaching us integrity. Then we dare to be bold for we're not ashamed. But I suggest that sometimes our timidity in the face of a hostile world may have to do with the weakness of our faith. If we're not sure whether we can trust God or not. If our actions don't support what we claim to believe. If we are so ignorant of Christ's work on our behalf that we're still wallowing in our sin. Well, no wonder we have no boldness. Perhaps God needs to put us through Jacob's school of hard knocks till we learn to trust him and to walk in integrity. And when he does, don't despise his discipline, for God is protecting his children by teaching us the integrity that makes us not ashamed. Indeed, it makes us bold. Well, one more way that God watched over Jacob here and protected him in this account, and that's that Thirdly, God utilizes human institutions. God uses human institutions. Sometimes we Christians can get so, as the saying goes, so heavenly minded we're no earthly good. We can get so focused on spiritual things that we have no use for anything that goes on in this world. But God indicates that it all belongs to him and that he uses the things of this world as he sees fit. Specifically here I'm thinking about the treaty that uh, Laban wanted to make with Jacob. We read about it in verses 44 down to the end of this chapter. Laban realizes that uh, he's in trouble with Jacob. He's falsely accused him, he believes. He's taken advantage of him. Jacob's on to him. Jacob is very bold. 
And now what's he going to do? What if Jacob decides to attack him? And so Laban comes up with an idea that maybe he can make a treaty, a non-aggression pact with uh, Jacob. Though Laban came with a superior force, and though he claimed the power to hurt Jacob, the truth is he's been humiliated and rebuked by Jacob. And so Laban says, let's make a treaty. And so they do. They put up a, a, a memorial stone, and they put a pile of rocks uh, around it, and, and they swear an oath to one another, and they eat a covenantal meal together, and uh, they make a treaty. Now, in Laban, as he talks about it, he casts this whole thing in terms of Jacob's untrustworthiness. Uh, he, uh, he, he's, uh, he's concerned about that Jacob might do something, and he's trying to protect himself from Jacob. And he, he, he forbids Jacob to, uh, to mistreat his daughters or to, or to marry any other wives. That's kind of a joke, because the only reason Jacob got into polygamy to start with was through Jacob, uh, Laban's deceit. And he wants an agreement. He says, uh, Jacob, I want this stone here to be a memorial that you will never pass this stone to come to hurt me. And I promise I will never pass this stone to come and hurt you. has this little statement here, may the Lord watch between you and me. Interestingly, people use that sometimes as a great blessing. It's not a blessing at all. It's, uh, even if I can't see you, God's got his eye on you and you better not. <laughs> that kind of a statement. So Laban wants to make a treaty, and he does. Now, now from Jacob's point of view, Jacob doesn't need a treaty. Well, J Jacob never wanted to marry lots of wives, and he doesn't want to marry any others. He only wanted Rachel from the beginning. And Jacob left Laban's household on his own free will. He has no intent to, uh, intent to go back there. He doesn't need to be stopped from going back. Plus, uh, by his own testimony, Jacob has learned that he can trust God. He's not concerned about trusting Laban in any treaty or anything. Nevertheless, God uses this treaty to protect Jacob, to draw a line to separate Jacob from Laban, who had set himself against him. God uses this human institution of a treaty for the protection of of his, of his people. But Jacob's faith was never in the treaty. Jacob's whole trust rested in the Lord. We can see that two places here very explicitly. Well, I mean, he says it, but, but we can see it in the language which Jacob used. When Laban called, uh, uh, spoke of the place, he called it by the Aramaic name uh, Jigar Shahadatha. But Jacob called it by the Hebrew name Galil. Jacob is separating himself. I'm not one of your Aramean friends. I'm not your Aramean son-in-law. I'm the grandson of Abraham, the son of Isaac, the Hebrew. And when Laban swears an oath, he swears it in the name of the God of Abraham and the God of Nahor, and he refers to that in plural terms. We know he's talking about different gods. In the name of all the gods that might be there, I swear this oath. But when Jacob swears the oath, he swears it only in the name of the true God, whom he calls the fear of Isaac. You see, Jacob is not trusting in the treaty. Jacob is trusting in the Lord. But nonetheless, the Lord uses this human institution for protection of his people. Now, I would suggest that's still how God works, isn't it? 
God still uses governments and constitutions and treaties and cultural patterns and local customs, all kinds of institutions to restrain evil and to protect the best interest of his people. We read in Romans 13 that everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities for there's no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. God is using, he's establishing human institutions. In 1 Peter 2 we read, Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether to a king, the supreme authority, or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. God is using human governments. He's using human institutions in order to, to protect, to order. Why? Because they're so righteous? Not necessarily. Laban was not righteous at all. But because God has these tools in his hand to do his will for the sake of his people, to protect those he calls to follow him. While we recognize God's hand at work all around us, our faith, like Jacob, our faith is not in these human institutions. Our faith is not in any treaty to protect us. Our faith is not in any nation to protect us, not in any president or king or congressman to protect us. Well, we pray for God's blessing on our nation, but our trust is in the Lord. We're thankful for constitutional law because we think it's right, but our trust is in the Lord. We see God working in the political system, but God's not a Republican nor a Democrat, and our trust is in the Lord. God protects those he calls, using even the institutions of men as tools in his hand to protect his people. But like Jacob, our trust is the name of the Lord. If any nation would uh, advance against an enemy, it must have not only a variety of combat forces, it must have some defense against every kind of threat. The advance of the kingdom of God is no different. God has raised up his king, the Lord Jesus Christ, and his kingdom is advancing. And so God calls people everywhere to rise up and follow him, to go where he sends, trusting him to make a way. But as he does, those God calls, he promises to protect and defend. And he does that by restraining his enemies. He does that by what he does in us that makes us walk in integrity and have boldness in, in, in the face of the world. And he does it by his sovereign ordering of all of society, even the institutions of men, in order to benefit his holy people. Oh yes, to walk in faith is to look fear in the face. But God is faithful and he cares for his own. But Jacob himself testified here, if the God of my father, the God of Abraham and the fear of Isaac had not been with me, Laban would surely have sent me away empty-handed. But God has seen my hardship and the toil of my hands, and last night he rebuked Laban. Or as the pilgrims sang it later in the Songs of Ascent, if the Lord had not been on our side, let Israel say, 
If the Lord had not been on our side when men attacked us, when their anger flared against us, they would have swallowed us alive. The flood would have engulfed us. The torrent would have swept us away. The raging waters would have swept us away. Praise be to the Lord who has not let us be torn by their teeth. We have escaped like a bird out of the fowler's snare. The snare has been broken, and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you are our helper, that you, Lord, are our strong defender, that you pull out all the stops, that you use the angels of heaven, that you use the institutions of men, that you, Lord, use uh, your work of your spirit to transform us from the inside out, that you use everything, Lord, to bring about your good purposes and that we can trust you and not be afraid. Well, thank you, Lord, for the example of Jacob, for we take great comfort. We're, we, too, are deceivers and uh, swindlers and Crooked as Jacob, some, some of us. And yet, Lord, you have been merciful and you've changed us and you keep changing us. Thank you that as you call, you protect. May we have faith to follow. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.